Well, man, it's hard to believe, but we are already, man, 10 weeks into our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll be picking up in Nehemiah chapter one today, if you wanna grab your Bibles and go ahead and start turning there. Ronnie's been making a joke that he doesn't even know where Ezra is. I can at least do one better than that. Nehemiah is right after Ezra, so good luck. Man, if, you, uh, if you're on a device this morning, we'll be in the ESV translation. If you wanna change that in your device, you'll just be able to follow along that much more easily. As you're turning there, I just wanna kinda of give a broad overview of Ezra and Nehemiah, where we've been. For those of you that may be uh, joining us for the first time today, there's a bit of backstory that's needed to understand what's going on in these books. In 586 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, including its temple, broken down the city's walls and burned their gates and their entrances with fire and had taken the Israelites into captivity just as God had warned them would happen if they broke the covenant that he had made with them, which they had repeatedly done. Listen to these words prophesied in Amos 2.4, nearly 200 years before Israel's captivity. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and shall devour its strongholds or the walls of Jerusalem. God is serious about his promises of judgment, but he is also serious about his promises of grace to restore his people if they would return to him and they would obey his commands. This is kind of the main thrust and the storyline of Ezra and Nehemiah, which were originally written as one book and really broken out into three main sections, three leaders that God uses each in their own specific way to bring about the fulfillment of his plans and his promises to reestablish his dwelling place with his people in Jerusalem. So the book of Ezra, it begins in 539 BC, nearly 50 years after Israel's exile. And in chapters one through six, if you remember, we saw that God worked in the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to allow this first group of Israelites to return to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel did just that. He leads this first remnant on the 900 mile journey back to Jerusalem and he begins rebuilding. Now, if you remember, there's quite a span of time from when they started out to when they finished the actual temple, about 20 years. And what we saw throughout these chapters is how God uses his people's steps of faith and obedience to work out his plans, even through opposition or when he seems silent. What we were reminded is that God is always working, that he knows no opposition and that nothing will bring his plans to ruin. And so in 516 BC, the temple is completed and the dwelling place of God is reestablished with his people. And in these last few weeks in Ezra chapter seven through 10, we looked at this second leader, Ezra. 
and how God uses him nearly 50 years after the completion of the temple to go in with a second group of Israelites and to teach the scriptures and to continue to rebuild and reform the community of the people who are there leading them back into obedience. All this is just a reminder so that as we start Nehemiah today, we remember that we are not starting a new story of God's faithfulness, but we are continuing in it. As we will see how he uses Nehemiah in this third and final stage in reestablishing his people with the rebuilding of the city's walls. So let's pick up together in Nehemiah chapter one. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and join me there says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord, church. I know that last line there might seem kind of odd. It almost feels odd reading it out loud that now I was cupbearer to the king, but I actually want to spend a little bit of a minute there um, just to explain that because it actually clues us into a few things. Nehemiah is giving us a window into his position before King Artaxerxes. A cupbearer was a role of high trust to a king. During this time, it was not uncommon for kings to be assassinated through the poisoning of their food and their drink. And Nehemiah's role would have been one to bring meals before the king and to inspect them and to ensure that that was not going to be the last thing that homeboy tasted. Nehemiah would have been held in high esteem and compensated well for his work. This line also reminds us, because I think we almost forget by this point in the story, that there is still a remnant of Israel that had not yet returned to Jerusalem. 
There's a decent amount of people that were still living and building lives within the Persian Empire and even working in good and high-ranking areas within that kingdom. Both of these things, they just help to inform our understanding of today's passage. And so with that in mind, what we see in verses one through three is that Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, and a group of his friends have made their way to Susa the Citadel, which was this location of a winter home for the king and all of his royal court. And it's likely that they made this journey to try and enlist the help of the king in rebuilding Jerusalem's city walls. Now we may read the story and we may think, like, what's the big deal? Right? Why, why are walls so important to these guys? I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, Scott, but like, there's no walls between Ashland and Richland, and we seem to be like doing okay here, I think. I don't know, are we not? Are we, are we doing okay? But this was a big deal for them. This was really their main form of security, and it was keeping them from the invasion of many surrounding areas. So to help us understand some of the emotion of what Nehemiah has just received, the news that he has just received, I want you to think with me this morning about your closest friend, right? Someone that you just love and care deeply for. Maybe they're sitting beside you right now. It would be like having that friend move away to another state, they get a job, they buy a house, and they establish a family there. And one day, another friend comes to you and says, hey, have you heard about how they're doing? Because they're actually not doing so great. They're, uh, man, they're in this really sketchy part of town. They, uh, man, their neighbors, they just kind of despise them. Oh yeah, that house that they bought, no doors, no exterior walls, nothing. They're kind of just left out into the open. Now, if you're a good friend, which I assume all you guys are, you're probably going to be pretty concerned for this friend of yours. This just wouldn't leave them in a very safe environment. It wouldn't leave the people inside, people that you love and that you care about with many feelings of confidence or security or really allow them to have any sort of normalcy of life at all. This is Israel's condition, and this is the news that Nehemiah has just received. Theologian Matthew Henry, he says, the temple was built, the government settled, and a work of reformation brought to some head, but there was one good and needed work yet undone. This work was still wanting. So how is this last work to be done? How does the work of God get accomplished in these times? And for that matter, how does the work of God get accomplished still today? And the answer is this, if you're taking notes this morning, the work of God is accomplished when a people who love God and have a deep concern for his people desire to do his work with a posture of dependence on him. This is what can be said of Nehemiah. And actually, this is what can be said about all the leaders that God has used in the story up until this time. Nehemiah had a great love for God, a deep concern for God's people, and a posture of heart that was dependent on him. And this is seen in how he responds here to this disheartening news. Nehemiah responds with prayer. 
and the way in which he prays is significant. And we're gonna look at that together this morning. But something that I don't want to skim over here is what takes place before he turns to prayer. Because if we miss that, we actually miss a really essential part of this text and its meaning for us. So look back with, at verse four with me. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. Don't miss that. All right, it's pretty common for us to just want to blaze over suffering and grief. All right, we're all guilty of this in some ways, and we will even use scripture to do it. All right, we're so quick to say, I know you're suffering, but just remember, all things work together for good for those who love God. Stitch it on a pillow, all right? Bring them back to Jeremiah 29 again. Remember, God knows what he's doing. He knows his plans for you. Hey, I know it seems like there's a lot of suffering in the world going on, but hey, you just gotta remember, God is still on his throne, right? All those things are true, and they are promises that we hold to. Don't hear me saying that this morning. But they're all the more true and meaningful when we place them over the sufferings of our present reality instead of using them to deny our present reality. It's right to grieve disheartening news. All right, Romans 12, 15, Paul tells us one of the marks of a true believer is that they weep with those who weep. We see this throughout scripture in chapter 30 of Job. Job says, have I not wept with those in trouble? Is my soul not grieved for the needy? Hebrews 13 tells us, remember those who are mistreated as if you are suffering with them. Disheartening news should always lead us to grieve, to mourn, especially as Christians. Because do you know what grief actually is? It's the rightful recognition that something is not the way God created it to be, right? The reason Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus in John 11 is not just for sadness for his friend, but for the effect of what sin had produced in God's people, namely death, right? The reason Nehemiah mourns is not just because he's sad for his friends, but because he understood the weight of Israel's sin, of his own sin, against God and what it had brought them to, and it is not what God wanted for his people. Right? These broken walls are a physical representation of the spiritual brokenness of God's people, and he mourns that. We should mourn the ways in which our brokenness presents itself. So it's right that we grieve when we lose a loved one or when we get a diagnosis of a sickness that's not welcomed, as you hear news of fighting and unrest in Ukraine and the sadness of a people being persecuted, we don't deny those things. We grieve with them, we mourn, we weep with them. But like Nehemiah, we also don't just stay there as if we were hopeless. Nehemiah reminds himself that though he feels helpless, he is not hopeless, and he goes to God in prayer. Pastor and theologian Ronnie Martin, I think you guys know him. He's gonna hate that I just said that. Man, he says, we would be hopeless if not for prayer. Prayer is where people who love God 
and have a deep concern for his people go when they receive disheartening news. Prayer is the posture of a heart dependent on God. There's four things I want us to notice about Nehemiah's prayer this morning. We're gonna be doing a lot of back and forth on the text here, so have your Bibles ready. Four things this morning are, he comes before God with reverence, he's honest in his confession and his repentance, he brings God's promises to remembrance, and he makes known his willingness and dependence. Yes, all those rhyme. I grew up in a non-denominational church that was really a Baptist church with a fancy website. It's ingrained in me, I'm sorry. He comes before God with reverence. Look back with me at verse five. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah begins this prayer with reverence, with this deep respect and honor for God and the covenant that he has made with his people. This was a time where polytheistic worship, meaning the worship of more than one God, was practiced by most. And so when Nehemiah prays, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, it's significant because what he is saying is that this God, the God of Israel, is the one and only God. He goes on to show his reverence by saying, this God keeps his covenant with his people who love and keep his commandments. In doing this, he is recognizing God's faithfulness to the people of Israel in direct view of their literal brokenness. He's recounting how Israel had turned from God, but that God had never turned from them. And he is keeping his promise in restoring them. Nehemiah has reverence for God and a thankfulness for his covenant, which leads him to honest confession and repentance. Look back at verse six through seven with me. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah confesses and then he takes action in line with his confession, which is what repentance is. And this is really a mark of a genuine faith and a dependence on God. Remember, Nehemiah is 900 walking miles away from this situation. All right, he could have just said, you know what? This is really their problem. All right, they're just, they're gonna have to figure this one out. But he doesn't. He doesn't write a letter sending thoughts and prayers back to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the walls. He doesn't pray for someone else to rise up to do the work. He doesn't even write back to Ezra, thinking about this one. He doesn't write back to Ezra criticizing the fact that the walls are still not built. Like seriously, Ezra, you have been there for a long time. What the heck do you even do with your time, bro? Nehemiah intercedes 
And he not only confesses the sin of the people of Israel, but he takes responsibility for his part in sinning against God and the rightful outcome that it had produced. This is one of the signs of honest repentance. When somebody understands and accepts the consequences that their sinfulness has produced. He doesn't deny it or try to blame anyone else for it. He knows only God and his goodness can redeem it. And so Nehemiah prays just that and he brings God's promises to remembrance. Look back at verses eight and nine. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Well, the word that Nehemiah is referring to here is from Deuteronomy chapter four, as well as being seen in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Nehemiah makes a request based on this promise that God had given to Moses and all of Israel. This covenant word from God was both a promise of judgment and a promise of blessing. Now from Nehemiah's standpoint, he has experienced the promise of judgment in Israel's exile. And so he pleads with God on his promise to show grace and mercy that if they would continue to return to obeying him, God would do what he said, that he would gather his people to the place he had chosen and he would make his name dwell there. This redemption and this restoration had begun, but it was not yet complete. Right? There's still work to be done. And this brings us to the last part of Nehemiah's prayer. He shows his willingness and his dependence on God to do the work. Look back at verses 10 and 11. It says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This was going to be a sacrifice for Nehemiah. All right, remember his position before the king. He had built a life there. He was established in the royal court of the king. And not only would he be giving all that up, but there was a potential. His request was going to be denied and it might even put him in danger of desertion and disloyalty to the king. But he had such a great love for God and a deep concern for God's people that it produced a desire in him to do this needed work of restoration. And he knew this work could not be completed or even begun without God. God had to intervene. A willing desire means little without dependence on God. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so Nehemiah pleads, he pleads for mercy in the sight of the king. Actually, what he asked for is mercy in the sight of this man, which is an important thing to notice. Nehemiah is a servant to the king. 
But more importantly, he is a servant of God and he recognizes that before God, the king is just like any other man. Nehemiah places his dependence on God and the resources of God's grace. Paul Tripp, pastor, says in his book, Lead, every leader leads while being in desperate personal need of the full resources of God's grace. And I would add that that's no less true for all of us. That's a truth that we all have to come to. We all operate in a full need of God's full grace. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they were all imperfect men in desperate need of God's grace. Guys, there is one hero in this story. And it's not Nehemiah, it's not Ezra, it's not Zerubbabel. All of their imperfections, all of their tainted obedience, all of their prayers interceding for God's people like this one point towards the perfect intercessor who was to come and who is Christ, who would one day come and perfectly intercede for his people who have never been able to intercede for themselves. Spoiler alert, Nehemiah may end with the rebuilding of the city's walls. It does not end with the final redemption of God's people. All of these leaders and all of their works point towards the final redemption to come in Christ. Every story of God's faithfulness throughout the Old Testament and all of scripture points to Christ, to his perfectly, fully redeeming work on the cross. I hope you never hear a sermon at substance that doesn't come back to Christ because every single one has to. It has to come back to Christ. All of these leaders stood looking forward to Christ and the redemption that was to come. We stand now on the other side of the cross looking back on the redemption that has and yet still with a need to be completely dependent on God's faithfulness. What all of their work, all of their best attempts at obedience and redemption show us is that without Christ, as good as the works may be, redemption is something we can never earn on our own. But because of Christ and the faith God has given us in him, redemption is now something we can never lose. And the works that we do now should all point to that hope. As we who have the redemption of Christ now look forward to the final work of restoration that is coming again and like our redemption, will only be completed in Christ when he makes all things new again. But until then, he is building a kingdom now and he is using his people to do it. The question for us, like Nehemiah, is are we willing? Are we willing to do the work that God has for us? Are we dependent? Are we dependent on him to open doors for these works? Are we praying, church, to both of those ends? I think about how this applies to us in some very specific ways right now with some of the new things that we are stepping into here at Substance in the coming months, some of which have already begun, 
some of the building projects that we're going to be doing this year, some of the ministries that we'll be launching in the fall, like the U Collective, we should be asking God now how he wants to use us in this community to accomplish his works of redemption. We should all be praying like Nehemiah prayed, which maybe you noticed is actually the same way Jesus calls us to pray in Matthew 6. We're not gonna go there right now, but I encourage you today, go to Matthew 6 and take a look at the prayer of Christ. See how he calls us to pray with reverence, with confession and repentance, with willingness and dependence, and to bring God's promises of forgiveness to remembrance. May we be a praying people, church. I read this, um, this really great and horribly convicting quote when I was studying this text, and it's actually an anonymous quote, so I can't even be directly mad at anybody for it, which coincidentally means neither can you guys. It says this, if we prayed with willingness for the part we can play in the work of God being done as much as we criticize the work and the people that we think aren't doing it, then the church would be a much more restorative place. Oof. Read that again. If we prayed with willingness for the part we can play in the work of God being done as much as we criticize the work and the people that we think aren't doing it, then the church would be a much more restorative place. Can we commit together to pray for the things that we are stepping into this year? We don't even have all the details of those things worked out yet and there's pieces that are still coming together, but let's pray for that together too. Let's be a people that pray for God to provide while also being willing to be a people that God uses to provide through. There's work to be done, church. It's a work that's not gonna be completed by just Ronnie or Zach or Jeff or myself. There is nothing individually special about any one of us. Sorry, Zach. But there is something special about how God unites his redeemed people in Christ and uses his church to accomplish his works. There's something very special about that. Remember, the work of God is accomplished when a people who love God and have a deep concern for his people desire to do his work with a posture of dependence on him. He works through our imperfect sacrifice because our perfect sacrifice has already been fulfilled and secured in Christ. All of our rebuilding, all of our restoring, and all of our renewing now are merely foreshadows of the final restoration to come when Jesus returns and all those that he has fully redeemed will be finally restored. I'm gonna end with Revelation 21, verses three through four this morning. Would you just close your eyes with me and would you just reflect on the hopefulness of this passage with me this morning? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with us and we will be his people. 
And God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Father, we look forward with great anticipation for that day, for the final restoration of your people. We are thankful for the ways you are working now in us to those ends. Even as we sang this morning, you are gathering a people from every nation and every tongue and you are making us a kingdom and priests to reign with Christ. We are forever thankful. Father, give us hearts that are fully dependent on you, that rest in the full resources of your grace with willingness to do the works that you have called us to. As we also remember that none of our works in themselves redeem or restore us. Only Christ can, only Christ has, and only Christ will. We pray this in his name, all God's people said.